It's the Grim Tidings Podcast. You're listening to The Writer's Pit. Today's guest, Joe Zebedee. It's the Grim Tidings Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Matheny. And I'm Philip Overby. And we are here with another brand new episode, first Writer's Pit of 2016. Philip, I'm excited to have uh, our guest on the show today. Um, our guest hails from Belfast, Northern Ireland. As an author of science fiction and fantasy, her first novel, Abendow's Air, book one of the Inheritance Trilogy, was released in March of 2015, courtesy of Tickety Boo Press, and is billed as a mashup of grimdark and space opera. She self-published her second novel just this last August, titled Inish Carrick, a sci-fi story set in her hometown of Belfast following an alien invasion. When not writing, she works full-time as a management consultancy running after children, dogs, and fish, though not necessarily in that order. She's a writer of short stories as well as full-length novels, has experience in self-publishing as well as small press publishing, study acting in university but admittedly can't act a lick, and has past employment experience as a medieval castle tour guide. Skyping in all the way from Belfast, the Grim Tidings podcast welcomes Joe Zebedee to the Writer's Pit. Joe, thank you for hanging out. Thank you for having me. It's really, really cool. And I'm, I'm hoping people can understand the Irish accent. Yeah, well, I'm I'm picking up on it so far, so it shouldn't be a problem. And we do have Philip Overby on the show, and he's got that deep Southern drawl to partner together. So it'll be a, a nice mixture of dialects and accents on the program today. Cool stuff. <laughs> so you recently became an Amazon double bestseller for your two books. Go ahead and tell us about that. Yeah, um, so I knocked uh, Star Wars um, off number one spot in space opera. So I've, I've, I've largely told my publisher I don't need to write anymore. That's it. Um, <laughs> no, you can retire now. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't get better. Uh, yeah, so uh, Inish Carrick uh, got to number one, uh, Alien Invasion, in November. And then Abendizer followed it this month. So uh, both in the UK. So I've still to convince you Americans that I'm a genius. Uh, but we'll get there. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's really good, and they're they're still both riding pretty high. Um, although George Lucas has uh, knocked me back off now. <laughs> that's cool. That's that's great news. It's always a good thing to um, hit the top of the lists in your uh, perspective category. So that must be satisfying. So, um, Abendo's Air is described as grim, dark space opera. Could you maybe tell us the qualities of Abendo's Air and maybe what gives it that uh, grim, dark vibe? Yeah, I mean, um, I think somebody said it was a grim, dark Star Wars, and that probably is is the closest description to it. Um, I think very early on in the book, we, we learned that no one is safe. I mean, I think by chapter six, we've got a couple of main characters who are gone, um, literally. And, uh, you know, so, so we very much get that established right at the start. Um, but I think the bit that makes it, if you like, appealing to the dark readers is um, there's a central theme in it of um, some torture scenes. Um, which are done a bit differently because I focus more on the psychological than any sort of gore and whatnot. And that seems to be the part of the book that people are remembering for the right or wrong reasons. I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, um, you know, so it's not so much this sense of the whole world is dark. There's, there's bits of the world that, are, that would be quite nice to live in. It's, it's a science fiction world. Uh, if you're a friend of the Empress, you're, you're in there. Um, but there is a sense the whole way through of this foreboding future that might come and that does eventually come. Um, and that theme sets then what happens throughout the rest of the trilogy. 
Um, and I mean, it, it is it, it has fantasy elements because it has sci-fi's. And one of the reasons for that was that I wanted to take the idea of the chosen one who goes off and gets duffed up and then gets up at the end and he's fine. Um, and I wanted to actually go right in close to that and say, if you were that person, what actually would happen to you? Um, so that, in a way, is what makes it so grim, is that you're really in the event with the person. Um, there's no zooming out, if you like. So, yeah, quite dark. So you said you you knock off some of the characters pretty early on. Would you consider that an element of grimdark that tends to be popular with readers, uh, the kind of George R.R. R. Martin effect uh, as far as killing main characters off or killing a, a good a good share of characters do you see that as a as kind of a trope of grimdark in a way i think there's definitely a feel i mean not just in in, in martin i mean you, you see it uh, even in mark lawrence's you know this this characters die throughout it and joe abercrombie's so i think there is that sense that um part of the genre is we don't know who we're going to reach the end with which gives it that sort of heightened sense of danger um, you know, and I, I think I think that's definitely something that gives a flavour to it. But I, I think it's also about why you do it. I'm not a big fan of just killing people off willy nilly, um, you know, to up the stakes. And the early events and the characters that die, they continue to shape right the way through to book three. So, you know, it's not just a case of hey, I'm going to kill these guys and then people will read on because, you know, it's really exciting. It's it's a case of if you're going to do it, you know, do it for a writing reason, do it for the theme, not just for effect. So Bendow's Era is book one of the Inheritance trilogy. How far into that trilogy have have you written and uh, what, do you, what do you have planned for the future titles? Yeah, so um, I have them all written. <laughs> uh, oh, okay. Yeah, that was my first books, and I really didn't want to sign a three-book deal without knowing I could actually write the three books. So I had book three pretty well close to the finishing line when I signed the deal. But book two and three have still to be, be edited, so uh, there's a wee bit of work to do on them. Um, so the second one, Sunset Over Abendai, it's out in March, and you know it's with my editor at the minute, uh, Teresa Edgerton. And uh, we'll see how much of a to-do list she gives me. Um, that's February taken up. Um, and then just go in, revisit book three, tidy it up. And there's just one or two themes that might change slightly, depending on where book two goes. So, uh, yeah, we're, I'm pretty well there. It will come out. Excellent, excellent. And have you had any uh, beta readers taking a peek at book two or anything? Oh, oh yeah, yeah. I have a writing group that I'm uh, part of. Um, and I also, it's a virtual writing group, so we have someone in Australia, someone in uh, the UK, someone in Scotland, a couple in Ireland. Um, so they have uh, read it all, and then I also have a couple of other beaters who have read through it. Um, I'm, I'm part of quite a big online writing community, so we would all support each other with that. So as far as your book being on the top of the Amazon bestseller list, uh, obviously, marketing came into play somewhere. Uh, I think a lot of people sometimes think if you just put something online, then everyone's going to go read it. It's the whole field of dreams. If you build it, they will come sort of thing. But yeah. obviously, you you had either a good marketing strategy or you had uh, your publisher helping you a lot. What, what, would you, what would you say got you to kick George Lucas in the face and knock him off that top spot? 
Yeah. Um, well, actually, I think it was a book bub. I don't know if you've come across book bub. Oh, uh, okay, yeah. Yeah. Tell us about book bub, or for, for the uninitiated, what book bub is. Yeah, so they are a promotional site, and they send out a single email on a day, and they feature books. Uh, the problem with BookBub is to get yourself selected. Um, you have to have really, really, really good reviews. Um, and those reviews have to be across more than just one platform. Um, so whilst it sounds quite easy, I got a BookBub and therefore, um, to actually get to that, you have to, if you like, prove that the book is good quality, is well presented and edited and such like. Um, so I took out a BookBub just for the UK. Um, mainly because that's where my strength is um, and also because my reviews, uh, particularly of Inish Carrick, were so very high. Uh, I think I'm on something like 4.9 stars on Amazon UK and that's on about 20 reviews now. So Very nice. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the reviews have played a huge part in it, you know, um, because on Goodreads as well, which is a lot pickier uh, than Amazon because of where they set their rankings. Um, it's high there too. So I took out the book bub and that was what put me onto number one spot. But then you've got to maintain that and also just getting the word of mouth out. So, I mean, my marketing is that I talk a lot. <laughs> um, so you have to make a lot of, make a lot of noise. Yeah. Well, I mean, I am chatty. Uh, so I, <laughs> honest, <laughs> so I'm on forums a lot. Um, and that tends to be where I would sort of hang out more so on Facebook I would be more active in groups than I would be in my timeline because I like the conversation so I'm active in quite a few of the sci-fi sort of communities um, and really one of those the sci-fi chronicles were the backbone of my early sort of support um, and they were brilliant at shouting out and supporting and you know just getting the word out they were really good. Do you think that's a big part of, of marketing to just be everywhere at once? I, I know there's lots of authors that uh, it seems like everywhere you look, they're there. Do you think if people who are not heavy marketers or they're not members of forums or groups, do you think them not being present kind of puts them out of sight, out of mind? There's an author I know who's uh, number 1,000 in the U.S. at the minute, first book just out doesn't do much marketing, it was only on one forum, you know, and the book's just caught fire, um, PJ Straber, um, you know, and it's doing really well. So, I mean, whenever people come to me, I do get people coming to me and saying, how do I replicate the marketing? Um, I think just do what you like doing, because, you know, people would say to me, should I start a blog? Um, I blog quite a lot. Only if you like blogging, because you'll drop it if you don't, you know, should I join a forum? Only if you like forums. Because I think if you're faking it, it really shines through that this person is here to sell and they're not here to engage. You know, so find the platform you like and go for that. You know, that's that's what I've, I've kind of done. I've struggled with Twitter a lot. I'm on Twitter, but I really don't know how to use it. I don't know if I'm just dumb or like, <laughs> or, or whatever the, the format just doesn't appeal to me or something, but... I think yeah, well, I think that's one thing that writers do a lot. They want to try to use everything, but like you said, it's it's better to use the things that you enjoy using. If you don't like Twitter, or you don't like blogging, then probably shouldn't do it. I'm on Twitter, but I, I'm not especially active. I, I, I use it for call-outs. It's good for that, for a quick call-out, something's happening. But um, in terms of engagement, I, I would be much more sort of engaged on Facebook, probably because I like longer posts than 140 
you know, I, I'm constantly deleting and trying to get down to 140 uh, characters. So, you know, um, yeah, use the one that you like. Yeah, at least for, for Twitter, I'm, I find that the conversation is very limited with the characters being limited to 140. It's hard to get really engaged as with Facebook. You can just get into the forum and comment and like and go back and forth, and it's really a lot less cumbersome. So uh, I think we kind of utilize Twitter for the same thing as just saying what we need to say about something and then uh, keep the engagement limited to forums and Facebook and Reddit, uh, etc. Uh, we had Michael J. Sullivan and Robin Sullivan recently on the show. Robin is actually going to come back for a Goodreads uh, discussion as well. Does Goodreads factor into your uh, marketing or promotion? Yeah, I mean, I'm not particularly active in the Goodreads groups, and that's one I'll listen to because I could be using Goodreads <laughs> a good bit more than I am. <laughs> um, you don't have time to do everything. I mean, that's the other thing. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there is only so much time you can put into, into, into marketing. Because um, I think there's a real danger of constantly marking, marketing and forgetting to write. So Goodreads, I'm on. The books are on. I review the odd book and whatnot, but um, I'm not especially active in the sort of wider community. Give us a little bit of an idea of your evolution as a as a writer. When did you start writing? I started writing in the summer that I was turning 40 that year. So I'd written a bit as a teenager but I hadn't touched it for 20 years. And my kids uh, were getting up just a little bit. And one of them was out in the street with her friends. And one of them had discovered YouTube. And I decided I could either tidy the house for a summer. My, my work is quite seasonal, so in the summer it's quite quiet. Or I could go and write the book. Um, so I thought three months would do it. Uh, and five years later, um, I'm still writing. <laughs> and it took 18 months. <laughs> That's great. I mean, some people are, even when they're like 30, 35, or even 25, they're like, I I can't be a writer. I just, I started too late. So that's, that's great that, you know, you said, this is what I'm going to do. And you went for it and you're now you're working it. So that's really great. Yep. Yep. And I haven't stopped writing since, since then I've written uh, six books up to sort of submission standard. But the, the list that I plan to do just keeps stretching on and on, uh, you know, so I find what I want to do. How do you typically structure your writing sessions every day? Yeah, I have an idea normally at the start. Um, Usually it's a question of the sort of what if or what's happened here. I usually have an idea of where I wanted to go at the end. um, And then I just write. So, I mean, uh, normally what I do, I, I clear my work work in the morning. And then in the afternoon, I sit down. I usually revise the chapter before I'm about to write just to tidy it up and to, you know, sort of bring myself up to date. And then I just type and I just keep typing until I hit the end of the chapter. So, you know, um, on a day whenever I'm writing, I can hit two, three thousand words quite easily. And uh, I just do that until I get to the end. And then I go back and tidy it all up. <laughs> and, that, and that's the bit that takes the time. You know, it, it, it's it, getting to the end of a first draft. My first drafts are really very, very scanty, you know. Um, in fact, they're mostly dialogue, um, so it's filling in all the bits and pieces. And then it goes out to the readers, and then they come back to me, and, you know, that's whenever I really start sort of tidying. So, yeah, I think a lot of beginning writers, sometimes they get discouraged because they start writing and they say, oh, this this is really shitty. And then they think, <laughs> how am I going to be a writer if uh, everything I write is shitty? But yeah. that's the whole process is that you have to sort of write something that's not perfect and then and then go back and make it beautiful it's not going to come out of the uh creative womb all beautiful and it's going to be covered in shit and (laughs) blood 
you got to yeah. clean it up. I do a lot of shit first drafts. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and you know, I'm, I'm I'm redrafting at the minute one that's a couple of years old, and I'm looking at it going, oh, this needs a lot of work. <laughs> and it's kind of like a jigsaw puzzle whenever you're in the middle because you've got one half is how you want it, and everything you change is like a little butterfly wing somewhere else. Um, so, you know, you're looking at this sort of path and it, it, it yeah, it, it can be hard. That sort of element of how do I get it from what first splurged out to actually something that's, that's quite finished. Yeah. I mean, I, I rewrote Abendai's Era, which is genuinely my first book as opposed, there's a lot of writers where their first book released isn't their first ever book. Um, but it is my first book, but I rewrote it something like 16 times. Wow. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I was determined to get that story out somehow. Um, you know, and I think people don't realise that. You know, at one point I just whacked 70,000 words off the off the start of it, you know. So I have a prequel if we ever go with it. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. Uh, you know, so, so I think you have to be quite brave and actually sometimes stop and say, what do we need for the story and, and what needs to go? And I think that, that's, that's a hard thing whenever you're starting to write. You know, you sort of think all oh, the effort I put into those words and now they're going, but that's that's the nature. Do you save all those uh, all those words that you delete? Do you keep them in a separate file of in case I need these later? Sometimes. I have deleted the odd scene and then sort of two weeks later thought, hmm, could have been doing with that after all. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I'm, I'm a quick writer, so I don't lose too much sleep, you know. Uh, but yeah, some, some I do. And there are old drafts that when I'm very famous will be worth a fortune, of course. So Einish Kerig is the title for your second novel. This one is self-published. You released it on your own. Yeah. Tell us about a little bit about this story. Uh, You know, when I think about settings, Salem, Oregon is not the first place that I think of setting a place for a story I want to tell. I do. You have. (laughs) (laughs) That'd be brilliant. (laughs) But you have set Einish Kerig in your hometown of Belfast. Tell us a little bit about the story and maybe how you kind of implemented some of the local scenery into the story. Yeah. Um, I, I quite like books that have strong settings. Um, like I really like uh, writers like Carlos Rio Safran who, you know, really take a place and make it part of the book. So it was deliberate. Um, and really the only place that I know well enough to do that with is, is Northern Ireland. Um, so it was written originally for uh, sort of open submissions and I, I wrote it over something like three months. So it was a very quick written book. Um, since then, it's had a lot of work. And uh, one of the things about Belfast is it's sort of known for the time of the Troubles, which was from about the 1960s through to the 90s. And it was sort of civil war. Um, and there's a lot of the imagery of Belfast that people know about that dates back to that. So soldiers on the streets and checkpoints and blown up buildings. And the Belfast of now is very different from that. So I wanted to capture something of the Belfast that everybody would recognise because it's part of our history and it still shapes the people, uh, but also present you know, Northern Ireland as it is now. I was really frightened, actually, you know, that the local people would have hated it. But so far, they, they haven't. Um, oh, good. <laughs> yeah, it was a big relief. Because writing about someone like Belfast, it, it's it's dodgy enough, you know, because there's, there's a lot of offence that it's easy to give <laughs> without meaning to. So, uh, so, yeah, that was quite frightening. But I think the, the two things that are hardest to capture, one is the language. Um, we use words that aren't heard elsewhere. I mean, I do genuinely call people Egypts. 
And I, I do say the word we in front of everything. You know, I've written a we story of 200,000 words. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to start doing that. I'm going to start saying we. <laughs> yeah, we. everybody should. <laughs> um, so trying to make it sound Northern Irish, but also make it that people who weren't from here could understand it was, you know, the challenge. Um, I have an American copy editor, which helped. She was very good at saying, here, hold on. That makes no sense to anybody. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we also talk very fast, so trying to get that speed of interaction, you know, so there's a lot of comma splices and wee bits of cheating going on in the writing. Um, so that bit was challenging, and then just getting the sense of Belfast as a place with an identity of its own. Um, I, I, I don't think it's a book that you could just lift and put somewhere else. I think the two, the story and the place are very intertwined in it. I hope anyway. Yeah, sometimes people say the setting itself can be a character if it feels so alive. So if it's very tied into Belfast, then you couldn't really just plop it in Mississippi or, or Salem, Oregon and have the same effect. <laughs> and, uh, but the story itself is a worldwide story. This, it, it's not just an alien invasion in Belfast. It's an alien invasion of Earth that it's set after. But what I do is that I zoom, you know, zoom in on this sort of, it's, it's, it's a teenager on the streets of Belfast and a policeman that sort of helps him are the two characters. So whilst it's sort of this earth-wide story, it's told from a really, really close-in local perspective. And we only really know what the characters know. So there's that sense of frustration of, you know, what is actually the wider story. They don't know, so I can't tell you. So, it, it, you know, so whenever you zoom in so closely, you have to be accurate and authentic, which meant that, you know, they, they do sound like they're from Belfast. I hope. They swear a lot. <laughs> what, are, what are some uh, swear words you could give us that aren't, that Americans or people not from Northern Ireland would know? To be honest, we use mostly <laughs> the same ones. We just use them a bit more. So we <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Just I don't more know you... excessively. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some do. Some not. Not everybody, but some do. Yeah. I mean, the classic is uh, the. Do you, do you get Father Ted over there? The TV show. Not familiar. Uh, oh, I've I've heard of it. I've 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 worked with a lot of people from the UK, so I have heard it mentioned. Yeah. So it's uh set on an island called Craggy Island, and it is a household of three priests and their housekeeper. And to get round the sort of fact that the Irish swore so much, but get it onto mainstream TV, they use feck. So they do. So it's feck <laughs> no. off, and yeah. Uh, so yeah. Um. And and but but unfortunately, you can't nick that now because everybody thinks of Father Ted with it. Can it's you good say, fun. You should watch it. Can you say we feck? <laughs> Are you we feck? <laughs> you we feck. <laughs> yeah. This is the most internationally offensive episode we've had. So far. <laughs> I'm behaving. My mother will be listening. You know. So there's only so far oh, okay. I could go. <laughs> Behave yourself, Joe. Absolutely. I've, I've actually got a reading coming up in Belfast, and I'm planning to do Yanish Carrick. And I'm reading for about 10 to 15 minutes, and I'm, I'm scratching my head about which scene I can find that doesn't have a swear word. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so there'll be a better rereading. Because <laughs> it's going to be a broadcast over the whole, the whole shop. So, you know, uh, uh, yeah, so I'll have to be here. Yeah. Joe Zebedee's standing in the middle of the bookshop cursing at everybody. <laughs> Yeah, let's just close it down now. So yeah, <laughs> shut it down. You do have um, acting as part of your uh, background and development. Uh, you studied at university. Has acting or drama uh, have factored into your fiction writing? 
Do you know, I think I, I'm, I'm not a very good actress, genuinely. Um, it wasn't my calling, but, but I really liked the process of getting into characters. And I think what I do bring to my writing is that when I write a character, I completely sink into that person. So I, you know, I can very much sort of, you know, empathize with what they're feeling and doing and wanting to do. Um, so I think I'm better writing from that perspective than I ever was acting. But definitely that's, that's, that's part of what I learned at theatre. You know, how do you inhabit a character so much that you can feel their emotions and imagine, you know, how they'd be. So I think the very close character stuff I do comes partly from those skills. Do you think that's helped you with dialogue at all, considering, you know, uh, acting is primarily dialogue and then using the scenes around you? Do you think that's helped you? Yeah, I think, I mean, I, mean, I quite like reading plays, um, which I know is a bit unusual, but I'm quite happy to sit down and read a play. Um, so I think definitely if you have that ear for what works in a conversation, it makes dialogue easier. And dialogue would be one of my sort of strengths as a writer would be one of the areas that people come back and say, yeah, that's okay, that's fine. World building, we need to work on. Yeah, so I think definitely that ear for how people speak and how they contract words and whatnot um, helps write in dialogue a lot. This may even be a good uh, prompt for folks listening into the show as a creative prompt. Maybe Google a play, uh, maybe a PDF or something like that, and read through a play and maybe analyze the dialogue and see how it flows and how it reads and see if there's anything that you can pick up to integrate into your own writing. Yeah, I mean, that's something that I would, whenever I see people posting, you know, and saying, how do I learn to write dialogue? It's one of the things I say quite a lot. Go and read a screenplay, go and read a, you know, a written play and see how they keep a story flowing using only dialogue. Yeah, you know, one of my favorites is uh, that, that was adapted from a play. It's Glenn, Glenn Glare, bleh, it's a mouthful, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, and uh, that opening scene where Alec Baldwin's basically saying, you know, uh, you're shit and you'll always be shit. And just all the dialogue in that movie is so spot on, but it all comes originally from a play. You can kind of get that feeling that the dialogue is so... Uh, sharp that it originally came from a play and not a screen not a screenwriter uh, per se so i think playwrights are very good at uh, honing in on good back and forth kind of dialogue style yeah i mean that's what they do all the time so definitely that's that's one that i would say to people i also if, if people are trying to capture an accent if they can read a playwright who writes in that part so you know um someone like neil simon you know for the american accent and you know it, you know it could be really good for learning how different dialects work so joe zebedee what are your current goals with your with your writing what, where do you see yourself in maybe five years <laughs> i'd like to be earning a bit from it <laughs> <laughs> You know, I'm I'm a typical writer, you know, there's, there's not a lot coming in. Um, I, I'm quite lucky because uh, I run my own business. Um, so I can up and down quite nicely around writing. At the moment, I have Fridays kind of earmarked. I'd like to get that up to a couple of days a week. I, I don't think I want to give up work. I quite like it and it, it gets me out of the house. Um, so writing sort of more often than I am. Uh, I have two more books coming out this year. And another one with a, a new publisher in 2017. So I have writing work lined up for the next 18 months. Um, and I have short work coming out in four anthologies this year as well. Plenty on at the minute. So I'd just like to keep getting a few more books out. And maybe just look to be a little bit more established 
um, and get my name out there a bit. You know, there's no point writing, starting to write in the hope of becoming a success because it's just such a lottery. So I think, you know, I just like to be still writing and enjoying it. It's interesting that you said, uh, you, you know, you want to continue to work and write because uh, I think a lot of writers' goals are to quit their day job and be a full-time writer, but that's not always a, a reality for a lot of people. They they have to continue to, to work their regular job, and some people hate their regular job, but it sounds like you, you like it and you like the combination of the two. Because I run the business myself, there's so much flexibility within it. So if there's a few areas that I'm not so keen on, they would be the areas that I would look maybe to drop if writing took off a bit. And in the areas that I like, I mean, I, I'm a lecturer um, sometimes and an auditor other times um, and a consultant other times. So, for instance, the lecturing, I, I really enjoy interacting with the students and, you know, the, those sessions. So that's the sort of thing I'd be quite happy just to keep doing a couple of days a week, right the rest of the time. What's your current uh, work in progress? Yeah, so, uh, I, well, I mean, I'm editing uh, the two Avondice, so they're the big focus this year. And then I am working with the new publisher on a dark fantasy, which is also based in Northern Ireland. Um, cool. Lots of furries. Um, actually, uh, one of the, the final scene takes place in the caves where on the Game of Thrones show, Melisandre gave birth to the Shadow Baby. Oh yeah, yeah. So I love Shadow Baby. Yeah, yeah. Old Shadow Baby. <laughs> <laughs> so this book takes place in all that sort of Game of Thrones land, just because it happens to be up the road. Um, and I'm currently working on a sci-fi, which again, like any, sits between the adult and the teenager. So I suspect it might end up self-published. We'll see. Yeah, because any character is self-published because. Its demograph wasn't that easy to market. And has the experience with with self publishing, um, Inish Carrick, is that has that gone well for you? Is there any th- things that you've learned along the way? Well, I mean, Inish was originally agented it uh, with a very good young adult agent, um, and we changed the book to become more young adult, and then it hit just as young adult sci-fi died a death um, after sort of a big splurge after the Hunger Games and it came back to me um, so that was a huge learning curve um, you know uh, that actually you can get dropped after your first book and then the actual self-publishing what I liked about it was I was able to bring the book back to what I wanted I didn't have to worry about the market I was able to say actually the adult point of view and the teenage point of view are actually what makes this book work that the two of them are interdependent on each other so I enjoyed the freedom of being able to do what I felt was right for the book. Um, and I've really, you know, I, I think because I'm used to running a business, I have no problem with fitting in sort of the business elements of the self-publishing. So, you know, I, I was quite happy. Um, but I also enjoy being published. I enjoy that there's somebody else uh, vested and having to push and do. So it's the best of both worlds. I can imagine that entrepreneurial spirit uh, definitely helps you in your in your self-publishing goals. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think there is a lot of skills transfer. You know, I mean, I've been doing ta- my own tax returns for 10 years, so you don't get too worried about the paperwork element and whatnot. <laughs> the only thing I didn't do myself was the formatting. I'm not particularly techy, so I did, I did get that 
uh, done. I, I might try it for the next one, but I was happy enough just to farm that one out, you know. And I think that's the other thing you learn from working for yourself is, you know, sometimes it's actually easier just to get somebody to do an element and, and they might be quicker at it than you. So definitely I find that sort of being used to working by myself, being used to setting my own goals worked well. But I, the way I see it is I match each project to whichever vehicle suits it best. And, you know, for some of them, that will be the self-published platform. For some of them, it will be a publisher. And, you know, I just play it by ear. I might at some stage start to think about getting myself an agent again, but uh, I'm, I'm not sure I can face the whole query in at this stage. Excellent, excellent. Well, Abendu's Air is available now, as well as Anish Kerrig. People can pick those up on Amazon. On social media, where should people uh, find you and, and connect with you online? Uh, so I'm on Facebook, just under Joe Zebedee. I'm on Twitter, on JoeZ1812. And I'm also, I have a website, which is joezebedee.com. And it has links to the blog and links to lots of short stories and whatnot that I've put out. So it's not a bad first sort of protocol, if you like. Um, and uh, I'm also around Sci-Fi Chronicles a lot, so that's another vehicle where you can find me. And what's the website for that? Uh, Sci-Fi Chronicles.com, SFF Chronicles.com. And you're blogging what once a week now? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I try. Yeah, I'm, I'm aiming for every Friday. I mean, the blog kind of just whenever I wake up in the morning and think, do you know what, that's irking me, or do you know <laughs> what, I think I'll just go and you know, write that. So it's usually just things that occur to me. But I am trying to be a bit more disciplined and get something out every Friday. So, so far, so Excellent. good. <laughs> but it, it is regular. I mean, sometimes you'll have two or three blogs in a week. Uh, you know, it just depends how irked I am, <laughs> how much I want to rant. <laughs> gonna, gonna post a wee blog today. Yeah, I might go and post a wee blog later. <laughs> I've got a wee, wee 300-word story to work on. I actually write facts, flash fiction for competitions, so I might go and do that. Awesome. So just a wide variety for you, Josh. Flash fiction, short fiction, full-length novels, self-publishing, uh, small press publishing. You're just all over the place. So thanks so much for hanging out for us today, Joe. It's been great to connect with you, and this is our first interview with somebody from, from Belfast, and uh, it was just great to uh, learn more about you, and best of luck to you with all of your publishing, and, and uh, I'm really excited for folks to pick up your books and give them a read that's brilliant and thank you so much for having me along it's been really good um there's uh, been nothing we we about this episode it's been <laughs> what's what's the opposite of we there isn't an opposite of we we just is we <laughs> big. this is a we long episode <laughs> <laughs> big ass big ass <laughs> you're so great thank you thank yes, you have a good one Joe. bye bye You've been listening to the Grim Tidings Podcast. You can find us online at facebook.com slash the Grim Tidings Podcast or on Twitter at Grim Dark Fiction. You can download the show on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you like the show, please share it and leave a review. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time right here on the Grim Tidings Podcast. podcasting.